Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I recently got invited to an Italian pizza party. And I'm not talking Italian-themed. I'm talking about 50 Italians in my friend Alessandro's backyard. Picture it. Italian music playing from a radio station in Puglia. Two pizza ovens ablaze, one with wood pellets and the other with propane. Pizzas went into the oven with a large wooden paddle, and they were done in 60 seconds flat. And then we ate. People passed around slices and shared a fantastic meal under the stars. It was magic. The pizzas we enjoyed that night were ridiculously good. But honestly, I'm happy with pepperoni and cheese. I just love pizza. So it shocked me to find out that when pizza first came on the scene, it was not always considered delicious. I think my favorite quote is from Samuel Morse, who talks about pizza being like a a piece of nasty cake that is taken reeking out of the sewer <laughs> and consumed. And when we think about pizza today, we think, yum, pizza tastes so great. And I don't think people thought pizza was that good a dish back then. Everything we eat has a story to tell. Welcome to If This Food Could Talk, a history show for everyone who eats. I'm Claudia Hanna. I teach Mediterranean cooking classes and lead culinary tours in Cyprus, Greece, and Turkey. I introduce food lovers from around the globe to a taste of the old world and to the history behind what they're eating. Did you know that Americans eat 3 billion pizzas a year? I read that in the Washington Post. That's like 350 slices every second. It's arguably the most beloved American meal, from a cheap staple at kids' birthday parties to an artisanal delight in the upper echelons of fine dining. Today, we ask, where did pizza come from? And how did it become such an essential part of American cuisine? Because I don't know anyone who doesn't eat pizza. I thought it would be best to start with the woman who literally wrote the book on the history of pizza. When I published the book on pizza, it resulted in some pizza fans who were pretty serious about the history and the meaning of pizza to email me. That's Carol Helstosky, professor of history at the University of Denver and the author of the book Pizza, A Global History. I was just struck by this because as a food historian, you don't often hear from your audience But I came to realize that pizza means many different things to people, and some of it is quite serious. With Carol's help, we'll explore pizza's ancient origin myths, and we'll trace its ascent from an allegedly nasty sewer cake to universal fame. On top of all that, we'll cook 
and eat what I think might have been the very first pizza ever. You can find that recipe on our website, ifthisfoodcouldtalk.com. I'll also share my tips for making the perfect pizza crust with just the right amount of chewiness and crunch. Join me in the kitchen right after the break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Olay. Olay. Hada. Let's get going. I'm in my kitchen in Charlottesville, Virginia with my friend Alessandro. He's the one who hosted the Italian pizza night. We're popping a bottle of fine Prosecco from the vineyard where he's worked for over 20 years. It's only 11 a.m. <laughs> I've invited Alessandro over to make pizza at my house this time because I know how seriously he takes this dish. He rang my doorbell carrying his own sauces, toppings, and at least six balls of freshly risen dough. I, I brought a mix of semolina and white flour together. Alessandro is bringing all of his fine dining experience into my kitchen, and that includes his love of pizza. Pizza is one of the best invention ever made. Pizza gives you feelings. Pizza is in charge of your feelings. You can have a, a bad pizza and have a bad day. A good pizza can make your day better. Alessandro is actually making not one, not two, but three pizzas. And between them, even though he didn't do this on purpose, they pretty much represent the history of the dish. We've got a seafood pizza. Some tuna. A traditional margarita. Fresh mozzarella on top, not the shredded. And an artisanal pizza with asparagus and prosciutto. As for me, I'm making a different kind of pizza. Chop up a little bit of dates. It's a crispy flatbread smothered in olive oil and topped with goat cheese and dates. Later in the episode, I'll share the recipe with you. It's what I consider a slice of history on a plate. Because this one could have been the very first pizza ever made. Look back with me to the 6th century BC. That's when the Achaemenid Empire stretched from North Africa to modern-day Afghanistan. It was one of the strongest empires that ever existed, covering nearly 5 million square miles and nearly 50 million subjects and growing. At the helm of this empire was the third Persian king of kings, Darius the Great. He commanded nearly 700,000 soldiers young men who were probably the age of my own teenage children. These soldiers would gather around a fire under the large sky, partially to keep warm, partially to eat. They were waiting for war at dawn, frightened, exhausted, huddled together against the cold of the desert night. It's said, for a meal, these young soldiers would place unleavened dough on their big, heavy battle shields. They cooked it over an open flame and paired the hot bread with things like dried dates, figs, and goat cheese. I'd like to believe that this flatbread with cheese and dried fruit made them feel a bit better, fortifying them for the long campaign ahead and perhaps offering a bit of comfort food before daybreak. Could this ancient Persian flatbread have been the first pizza ever made? 
so many different parts of the world, so many different cultures and communities have their own version of a flat bread with baked on ingredients. And for every one, there's a, a, a sort of a myth or an idea or a history or a story that, you know, perhaps that is the origin of pizza. That's Carol Helstowski again, food historian and author of Pizza, A Global History. She says that origin stories like this one are everywhere. Some folks say pizza began as a kind of scallion pancake in China, brought to Italy centuries later by the Venetian explorer Marco Polo. Maybe. There's evidence of a kind of flatbread topped with herbs and olive oil all the way back in ancient Greece. And if you get technical, flatbread itself goes back some 70,000 years, according to some researchers. But there is something most food historians and food lovers can agree on. If you want to have a more precise definition of what you think pizza is, then I think you'll probably be more comfortable with saying something that is referred to as pizza. Yeasted flatbread with toppings that are baked onto it becomes popular sometime in, let's say, the 18th century in Naples. If you're picturing a large wood-fired pizza with creamy mozzarella, think again. By the 18th century, Italy was one of the poorest countries in Europe. It was a time of scarcity, and the people were hungry. In Naples, which of course is a port city, there's lots of workers there in all kinds of industry, but also a lot of sailors going out and fishing every day. And Naples being a very crowded port city was also the home of fast food. She's talking about street vendors selling pre-cooked foods outside in the open. Not because people preferred to eat outside the home. It was because many people had to eat outside the home. They didn't have kitchens. They didn't have facilities. And they were crammed into these tiny you know, apartments and dwellings. People were buying their food one meal at a time, based on what they could afford that day. Sailors and workers would get up in the morning and buy from these mobile vendors cheap takeaway food that's highly portable. And they would take them out on their boats or, you know, their ships or their shops or wherever they were going. And that was lunch. And that portable food was called pizza. It had all kinds of toppings based on what the pizza maker or pizzaiolo could find whether they had herbs from collecting them or tiny fish that maybe they pulled out of the water, maybe some vegetables or something, whatever they had on hand, they would sprinkle on top of the dough and bake it off. Then those pizziolos would take their pies and set up on a table on a busy street corner, ready for workers hurrying to their jobs. Or you might see a pizza seller walking the streets with a box of pizzas and an oiled board tucked under one arm. They'd cut off a slice on the spot, sized according to the customer's appetite and budget. If you only had a few pennies, you would say, you know, give me three pennies worth of pizza. Or if you had more money, you would say, give me more, and they would cut you a bigger piece. So it was kind of by the pound, like the weight? Kind of, yeah, like by the weight. In fact, people would buy pizza slices during the week in order to save up for macaroni on Sundays. That's how cheap pizza was. It was a food for the working poor, invented out of economic necessity. Yet, most of the records we have from this time are from the upper class. 
tourists who kept diaries and wrote memoirs. One of them was Alexander Dumas, the French novelist. He observed that even with a single coin, one could buy a slice of pizza and survive to see another day. Others, well, they looked down on the street food they found in Italy. I think my favorite quote is from Samuel Morse. He's the inventor of the Morse code. He talks about pizza being like a a piece of nasty cake that is taken reeking out of the sewer (laughs) and consumed. It was probably smelling like those little baby fish, right? Probably, yeah, and made out of whatever was on hand and sometimes maybe, you know, overcooked and eaten on the street. I don't think that was very attractive to many visitors. So how did pizza work its way up the food chain, from a humble food for the working classes to everything that it is today? The answer to that could lie in the most famous origin story of all. The Queen Margarita story happens in 1889. That's Queen Margarita of Savoy, wife of Italian King Umberto I. The working poor of Naples had been making and eating pizza for decades at that point. And on a visit to the port city, she was curious. And so she doesn't go out in the streets and order it from these mobile vendors. Instead, she calls upon this pizza maker known as Raffaello Esposito and requests that he bring some sample pizzas to her luxurious quarters wherever she's staying. He makes several kinds of pizza, including one that is topped with tomatoes, mozzarella cheese, and basil. And if we think about it, those are what? The colors of the Italian flag. So she eats the three pizzas and proclaims the red, white, and green pizza her favorite. And then that pizza, as it goes down in history, comes to be known as the pizza margarita, for which Naples is known. Queen Margarita's choice likely had political undertones. Her husband, King Umberto, was only the second king of unified Italy. The colors of the pizza matched the new Italian flag. And, as the story goes, with the queen's blessing, pizza's reputation started to change. This little bread with a sprinkle of tomatoes, mozzarella, and basil rises up from the streets, a culinary underdog. And who doesn't love an underdog? There is some evidence supporting this Queen Margarita story. In fact, the Queen's head of table service supposedly wrote a thank you note to Esposito. Most esteemed Mr. Rafael Esposito Brandi, I confirm to you that the three kinds of pizza you prepared for Her Majesty the Queen were found to be delicious. Please believe me to be your okay. most devoted servant. God I'm waiting here because I'm, I'm not sure how much to weigh in about this. Carol says as much as people love this story, it's hard to say if the queen should get credit for pizza's growing popularity. Here's my two cents. I think that people were certainly eating pizzas with cheese and tomatoes and basil, right? Because pizza's a creative act. It's whatever you put on the pizza. So I don't think this was the first margarita ever made. I do think people were, were eating that kind of pizza long before the queen was. Carol's hedging her bets a bit here because, like all pizza origin myths, this one is highly contested. For instance... Questions have been raised about the authenticity of the Queen's letter. So even though it might be the most popular pizza myth, it's still just that, a myth. 
a story we tell ourselves about the food we love. There's a real desire. I was going to say hunger. <laughs> There's a real desire, right, for information about food history, right? Food history is really popular and people want to know. And Carol says, sure, we could spend hours discussing Queen Margarita's thank you note. But when it comes to studying food history, to her, what's more interesting is stepping back and looking at what people do with food, how they use it as a means of expression, which is how Carol approached the study of pizza. She says pizza's origin story is deeply interwoven with the story of Italy itself and its people. It's really a tribute to Italian ingenuity. If we think about Italian cuisine and how it's very simple, Sometimes just a few key ingredients make a dish. Or if you think about the many shapes of pasta, certain shapes have to be paired with certain sauces. They were able to turn very simple food into this very complex language. Out of economic turmoil, Italians managed to create one of the richest and most popular food cultures on the planet. And then they brought it to America. In the late 1800s, Around the time that Queen Margarita was reportedly enjoying her pizza in Naples, millions of Italian immigrants set sail for the U.S. in search of economic opportunity. And soon, pizza became a street food in New York City and beyond. So how did pizza become a staple of American cuisine in the span of less than a century? So much so that American food critics in the 1950s worried that this so-called ethnic food might replace hot dogs as America's favorite. That answer is coming up. Also, want to learn how to make pizza like a pro? It's all in the dough. I am sharing my secret for the perfect, chewy, yet crunchy pizza crust. That's all coming up right after the break. Welcome back to If This Food Could Talk. We've been tracing pizza's history from Italian street food to a dish fit for a queen. And the amazing thing about pizza is that it just keeps evolving in surprising ways and in surprising places. I want to take you now to Marlowe, Oklahoma, to meet a present-day pizza maker, someone who truly represents the migration of pizza from Italy to New York to every town in America. When people from New York come in and say, this is better than New York pizza, that's when you know. Those are fighting words right there. This is Brian DeCintio, and he's the founder of DeCintio's Pizza Cucina in Marlowe, known to his customers as the best place in the country to get a large, foldable New York-style slice, crispy at the edges and perfectly cooked. Best pizza in the world. <laughs> and, and I travel for a living and I've been all around. So. I've been to Italy, I've been all through New York, and this is fantastic pizza. Even when we vacation, we always look for a New York style pizza someplace, you know, but they never add up to his. And they aren't kidding. One father and son drive 250 miles each way, once a month, just to get a taste. That's Brian DeSentio for you, man, bringing everybody around the country to come in here in Marlowe, Oklahoma. Brian opened DeSentio's Pizza 40 years ago. He retired and sold the place in 2021, but he still comes in 
every Friday and Saturday night to sling dough in the kitchen. Pizza and its history are in Brian's blood. Like many Italians looking for a better life, his grandparents emigrated from Italy in the beginning of the 20th century and started a pizzeria in East Chester, New York. I remember, you know, getting maraschino cherries from the bar and Chlorette's gum, listening to Soldier Boy on the jukebox. I remember the dough, you know, the, the pizza dough. I remember the smell of it. You just, you don't get over that. Brian's family, his grandparents, aunts, and uncles, all lived in three apartments right above the shop. And one of the bedrooms was situated just over the pizza oven. A pizza lover's dream. It was more of a nightmare because it was so hot. And I remember the windows being open and the entrance to the bar was right below us. So you could hear the, the bar patrons coming and going. You could look out and see the women all dressed up. Brian left New York in his early 20s and hit the road. He traveled to Alaska, spent time in Mexico and Texas, then heard there was big money to be made in the Oklahoma oil fields. But after being in the heartland for a bit, he began to miss his grandmother's cooking. You couldn't get good pizza there. So I, I didn't have any choice. If I want a good pizza, I had to do it myself. Before Brian and his wife Denise could open their first shop, there was one thing they had to get just right. The dough. According to everyone we've spoken to, the secret to a good pizza is all in the dough, which makes perfect sense. Throughout history, this is the literal foundation for pizza, the flatbread. I mean, it's like five ingredients, yeast and sugar and salt and water and oil and flour. So it's all the same, but it has to have the right crunch, but it has to have enough strength to hold the toppings on it. But in an industry where recipes lead to economic success, no respectable pizza maker was willing to share their dough recipe with Brian. You can't get any help on it. You can look at YouTube, but still, the temperature of the ingredients, the order you put them in the mixer, you know, everything counts because we tried all kinds of stuff. Dough was the key to the whole operation. So while Decintio's Pizza Cucina was still under construction, he got to work developing dough recipes. Picture it. Brian doesn't even have a kitchen yet, but he set up a makeshift table with a couple of sawhorses and got to work. Every day I'd make a batch of dough and then I'd let it rest for a day. To make a really great dough, you've got to give the yeast time yeah. to work. And you can look at it, all the yeast in it. And everything. So while it's that dough was resting, flavor. Brian would mix up another batch, tweak the process, the order of the ingredients, the amounts, the temperature. I, I try a pizza the next day. And as the contractors built the place around him, he started figuring it out, building on the good batches, learning from the bad batches. Throw that batch away and Until finally, after three months, three months of trial and error, he made the perfect pie. I mean, you know, when you hit the right dough, when you take it out of the oven, it cooks perfectly, and you cut it and, you know, it doesn't flop. Brian's dough must be pretty on point. Because as soon as the doors opened, business boomed. Before long, Decintio's Cucina became a beloved haven for pizza lovers all over Oklahoma. Not bad for a self-trained pizziolo. And speaking of pizziolos, remember our trusty street vendors back in Naples? The mobile sellers who used whatever local ingredients they could find? 
Well, back in the 1980s, Brian had a lot more in common with them than you might think. Even after he got the New York pizza crust to perfection, he couldn't get his hands on a lot of the other ingredients that he remembered from his childhood back in New York. I'd see someone advertise Italian sausage, you know, in a big store in Oklahoma City, and we'd drive an hour up there, you know, right home and cook it, and it'd be terrible. So, you know, it just, it wasn't grandma's, that's for damn sure. And supply chain issues aside, it turned out people in Oklahoma just liked different things. They weren't clamoring for fine Italian meats. They wanted more dairy. A 16-inch large pizza in Oklahoma has one pound of cheese on it, and people order extra cheese. That's important right there. It is loaded with cheese. Yeah, it is. Just to give you a bit of perspective, a large pie from Domino's has about half as much cheese. And this right here is something that fascinates me. Carol Helstowski says that there may be pizza archetypes like the classic margarita, the seafood, and the New York slice. But wherever pizza travels, it changes to reflect people's tastes. Pizza embodies what scholars call glocalization, which is they may be global, but they're observant of or cognizant of and sometimes respectful of local food habits and food ways. So as mom and pop stores like Brian's were opening up across the country, something really interesting began to happen. Regional pizza styles. And every one of them has an origin myth of its own. You know, there's Chicago deep dish. There's something shrouded in a lot of myth called the Hawaiian pizza with uh, Canadian bacon and pineapple, which was not created in Hawaii, but probably somewhere in Canada. There's also Detroit-style, Quad Cities, Rhode Island, Ohio Valley, New England Greek-style, the D.C. Jumbo Slice, and Colorado's Mountain Pie. At the table, they serve honey that you can then pour on top of the crust and eat the crust kind of like dessert. You can find regional pizzas all over the world, from tandoori chicken pizza in India to banana pizza in Iceland. There's even kimchi pizza being served up in Minneapolis. It seems no one can resist putting their own spin on this simple yeasted flatbread with toppings baked into it. Local flavors aside, what I still want to know is, how did pizza become such an essential part of the American diet? As I mentioned, the Washington Post reports that Americans eat 3 billion pizzas per year. Think about it. I mean, no matter where you're from in the U.S., chances are you grew up eating pizza. And a lot of it. I don't think you're allowed to have a child's party without pizza. <laughs> There are a couple of reasons why pizza began to dominate the food landscape. The first was frozen pizzas. By the 1950s, frozen pizzas were lining the supermarket shelves. Busy homemakers could pull them out of the freezer, pop them in the oven, and voila, dinner ready in under 20 minutes. The second reason? A handful of enterprising Americans in the Midwest with a big business plan. The Domino's restaurants that were first set up was a very conscious business plan to put them near universities and military bases because it was for people who wanted cheap filling food, you know, right? Soldiers and students. Carol says that fast food pizza chains deserve a place in pizza history. Pizza Hut first opened its doors in Wichita, Kansas in 1958. 
Domino's came just two years later in Michigan. But unlike Brian's dedicated regulars, customers of these big chains weren't looking for authentic Italian slices. Like the original Italians seeking street foods, these customers wanted meals they could afford. A few years back, Carol actually did an experiment with her classes. It showed that college students and 18th century Italians were quite similar. I got a little bit of funding from my university. It was a class for first-year students, and they had this little budget. I blew that budget on pizza. And I made the students eat pizza once a week and talk about it. You know, like, let's try this fast food pizza. Let's try this kind of pizza. Let's do this. Let's tell me what you think about it. And something that I learned from them that was really interesting was they would buy fast food pizza because it was dependable in the sense that they knew exactly how much of it they could eat. And they knew how much they could save, right, put in the refrigerator for later. It was an economic choice to eat fast food pizza. Just like the street food vendors in Naples, these chains were offering cheap, filling meals to the hungry masses. Now, you might think that big pizza chains would roll into town with their $5 pies and wipe out the competition. But it turns out that is not always the case. It doesn't really matter whether your preference is fast food, tandoori chicken, or Persian flatbread. Different situations are appropriate for different types of pizza. Kids' birthday party, let's get the Domino's, or, you know, date night, I'm going to go out for a fancy pizza, or I have my foodie friends visiting in town, so we're going to take them to the artisanal place, right? So people don't pick and choose, they just eat more pizza. Pizza really is a Cinderella story. From the humble flatbread cooked over an open flame to an elevated artisanal feast fit for a queen. And I am so glad I don't have to pick a favorite because I have four different types of pizzas coming out of my oven right now. Okay, I'm taking out the asparagus. Back in my kitchen with Alessandro, we're just about ready to eat. A pureed uh, asparagus. We've got the seafood pizza, the margarita, and an asparagus and prosciutto delight from Alessandro. Mine's got a bit of dates, a bit of goat cheese. And me, I'm sharing my Persian flatbread, which I think could be the ancestor that started it all. What I love about this flatbread recipe is that it's really simple. It's flour with oregano, rosemary, and salt baked right into the dough. The herbed goat cheese is melted right over top. I tear it off when it's hot and fold in some dates, like a little flatbread sandwich. Like those Persian soldiers eating their flatbread under the stars, I hope you're enjoying your pizza with good company. It's very important who you share your meal with, and having the family around, that's what makes everything better. So from me and Alessandro, and my kitchen in Charlottesville to yours. So in Arabic, they say, Tislimidiki which means bless your hands. Bless your hands for cooking all this. Every time my family and I eat, we always say, Tislam Adik. And that's my wish for each of you out there. Bless your hands, friends. <laughs> Would you guys like to try some food? Sure. Okay. I'm washing it down with a bit of Prosecco. For my Persian flatbread recipe, hop onto our website, if thisfoodcouldtalk.com. If you decide to try it out, please let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you. And stay tuned after the credits for a tip on how to get a crunchy pizza crust with a chewy center. Hint, it's all in the flour. 
You just listened to If This Food Could Talk with Claudia Hanna. If you want to support us, you can follow If This Food Could Talk on your favorite podcast listening app. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really helps. You can also get updates on bonus content by following me and American Public Television on Instagram, X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find more information on all of our guests this season on each episode's show notes. This episode of If This Food Could Talk was hosted by me, Claudia Hanna. Production by Carriot Harmon, Jacob Lewis, Claudia Hanna, Nate Toby, John Barth, and the team at Great Feeling Studios. Editing by Yasmin Khan and sound design by Carriot Harmon and Jason Sheasley. Associate producer, Kate Hayes. If This Food Could Talk is based on an original concept by Claudia Hanna. Executive producers for APT Podcast Studios are Jim Dunford, Cynthia Fenneman, and Sean Halford. Art for this podcast was created by Jay Nungesser. Special thanks to Sage Tangway, Aaron Ballou, and Grayson Wheeler for their help with this episode. APT, American Public Television, is the leading syndicator of high-quality, top-rated programming to American public television stations. You can learn more at aptonline.org. Now, here's a tip for how to elevate your homemade pizza dough. It's all about using two types of flour. Put away the all-purpose bleached white flour. Instead, reach for the double-zero flour. It's a really fine flour imported from Italy. Then, when it's time to stretch out the dough, I grab my second flour. It's called semolina. This is a thick, coarse flour. The semolina is going to act as a barrier to the high heat in the oven. What you get is a moist, chewy center with that double zero and then a slightly crunchy, thick outer layer of crust with the semolina.